If you're sailing, you can see rocks under the water just because of the way the water changes. The ripples look different. And what we are good at doing as an organization, what psychodynamic theory allows us to do, is to look at the surface of that water and go, there's something over there and it may be problematic. Let's go and have a look at what might be under there. I'm Paul Gisby, and this is the Talking Leaders podcast. Lawrence Barrett is a leadership consultant with a difference. He's unimpressed by much of the leadership theory and techniques that have been promulgated by business schools for decades. Moreover, he believes a lot of what has been taught is not only wrong, but has been damaging. Lawrence and the consultancy practice called Heresy, of which he's a founding director, believe that for leadership to work, it must be grounded. Leaders need to connect with people at a human level. Leadership needs to be about offering meaning, helping others find meaning for themselves, and beyond this, building agency for themselves. Based on the principles of psychodynamics and drawing strongly upon the work of Jung and others, this approach to leadership development is not one you'll find widely offered. Heresy is different from other consultancies. The clue is in the name. At the beginning of March, I had the pleasure of spending some time with Lawrence at his home in Brighton on the Sussex coast, and we started our conversation by looking at how Lawrence and his colleagues work with their clients. We work with what lies under the surface, and what we bring to the engagements that we have is that we're pretty good at understanding what might be lying under the surface. We're good at noticing the symbolism, the ripples, if you like, um, and once you have that insight, it's much easier to make the decisions you need to make. So is that what you start with then? You come in and you say, OK, well, first up, we need to meet your people. And the first engagement is that, that, that we're going to get to know them and really get to know them, get to know them in a, in a probably a deeper, more psychological way than, than most consultants would do. Is that what you start off with? I think we start off with good observation, actually. So even more than getting to know, it's just noticing things. I, I look at organisational consulting a little bit like if you're sailing, you can see rocks under the water just because of the way the water changes. The ripples look different. And what we are good at doing as an organisation, what psychodynamic theory allows us to do, is to look at the surface of that water and go, there's something over there and it may be problematic. And it's interesting, you've had several ships lost in that particular area. So let's, let's go and have a look at what might be under there. Do you have an example you could use to illustrate that? Of what might lie under the surface? Well, where do you, where do you've done that when you've said, okay, you know, we've been monitoring this particular group. And I mean, when you say monitoring, I mean, what, you sort of sit in on meetings and stuff or? Uh, we talk to people. We, it depends on the work that needs to be done. But you can sit with a team and you can talk about how they're operating. And, well, I'll give you a very good example, concrete example. We were working with a senior finance team some years ago, and I was a little confused as to why I'd been asked to consult to this team. Um, I didn't understand, actually, why I was there. There were lots of sort of different reasons, and I, I felt at the time something was not being discussed. Now, within this team, their, their manager, who'd brought us along, 
to to consult didn't show up for the for the meeting that we were the workshop we were supposed to be running okay the briefing we'd had was this is just not a very good team and you know you need to fix them for me so we turned up and we had this 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 agenda and i remember saying to the uh, the team themselves i don't know why i'm here so we were going to do this this was the agenda which you've seen but we're not going to do that anymore what we're going to do is talk about why why i'm here because it doesn't make sense to me and we had about 30 minutes where nothing was really said and we sort of ummed and ahed and I said, okay, this is interesting because there's a discussion here that's not being had because I'm still none the wiser and you can't name what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So let me talk a little bit. Let me, and I did what I usually do, which is return to theory. Let's talk a bit about the shadow. About the what? The shadow. Right. Now the shadow is, is that aspect of the self that um, you can't accept. So within ourselves as individuals, but also within organizations and within societies, there are aspects that we um, cannot talk about, cannot be named, cannot face and confront. They may be something we do that um, we're ashamed of, but it may also be something we don't do that we, we can't bear to think about. So we said, I said, let's, let's just talk a little bit about the shadow. This is what it is. This is a construct. And um, I'm wondering what's going on. One of the participants stood up at the end of the room and screamed at me. And I, I don't mean shouted. I mean screamed. Um, he said, uh, you're wasting my time. So my response at the time was, oh, that's interesting. Um, how might I be wasting your time? Maybe that will move us a bit closer to finding out what's going on. Here. Mm-hmm. Another member of the team said, well, is he though? Because there is something about this. There's something we're not really talking about. I wonder what that might be. Mm. And we talked around this for another hour or two. But what it led to was a gradual dawning realisation by staying in the conversation that actually they didn't like the boss very much. They didn't feel empowered. They didn't trust each other. Um, They didn't feel able to talk about the fact that there were problems within the organisation with the relationships because they weren't sure how the relationships were with each other and with him. So as a team, they really had no kind of basic team function. They were a group of individuals who fundamentally didn't trust each other or their purpose of coming together. And once we got that on the table, then we were able to have a conversation along the lines of, okay, your boss is still there and he's going to be there for a while. So how are you going to work with that? As a collective, what do you want to do? And that allowed us to start thinking around, okay, well, we could bring in certain amount of protocols. We can involve him in certain meetings. We could keep him out of certain meetings. And we had a, what was, I think, a very constructive day. Interestingly, he joined us at the end, um, asked them to present what they the were going to do. Yes. He was very happy with the whole thing because they had a plan and they had a structure. And um, and the, the final here was great, actually. The guy um, who screamed at me, came over at the end and said, thank you, that was real consulting. Um, because I think what we'd been able to do was just by holding the anxiety mm. that was in the room mm. and allowing a space for a real human conversation, mm. we were able to talk about the stuff that no one wanted to talk about. Right, right. So when people know you're coming, like this boss said, you know, you, you were coming in and going to work with this team, and do they know that you're coming in with a psychodynamic lens on? Yeah, usually. I mean, that's what we, we are. Does that, does that cause any problems? Does that spook them and think, oh, gosh, these guys are, you know, they're trick cyclists and they're going to be analysing me all the time? Oh, we, we, we get comments like that. I mean, it, it's interesting. There are, there are clients who wouldn't work with us because of that. Um, and that's OK. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not in the business of, of fooling people. You know, if people want to work with me uh, or with Heresy, my colleagues, we will talk about what lies below the surface. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think most of our clients are in the mindset which says which is 
that's really inconvenient and we'd probably rather not do it, but we recognise the importance of it, so go for it. Right, right. Um, and that tends to be how we work. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's, let's go beyond that. So you've, 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 gone, you've gone in, you're getting a feel for, for the sort of psychological basis for, for the problem and so forth. There's an, another reason why the name heresy works, yeah. though, isn't there? And that, having done that, you do not then turn to all the classic business school theories on how to fix it, because you're not a big fan of those, are you? Not really. Um, I think many, much management theory is relatively superficial. It's based on observation of practice without really understanding the dynamics, uh, history, culture, emotional assumptions that underpin and drive those dynamics. So in, in essence, when we're looking at a lot of management best practice, as people tend to think about, we're ignoring what is actually, what the conditions that have allowed those practices to actually operate. Um, what we would want to tend to do is work a little below that at the root, particularly the human root. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the name heresy. We were in part inspired by, think about Martin Luther, when he nailed his thesis to the, the door of the cathedral, his 78th thesis, he wasn't proposing a new religion. What he was doing was suggesting that the, the persona of the Catholic Church, the papal bulls and the clothes and the stained glass, had got in the way of the relationship between man and God. Whatever you happen to think about that, um, that was very much a, a very clear stance, to a radical stance to return to the root. We have the same view, I think, psychologically, which is, I think, much business school theory, much occupational psychology has got in the way of the relationship between people and themselves and people and other people. How do we help people understand what might be really happening for them as human beings, mm. as complete human beings? Um, not as a unit of production who happens to walk in, adopt a persona mask of a, of a manager um, and behave in a way that is wholly rational, which we know is impossible. But as a human being who walks in, who's scared, tired, angry, bored, uh, alienated, who doesn't want to have some of the difficult conversations, who's occasionally inspired, um, who might have had a great day at home um, and wants to think about things in a slightly different way, where there's a sunny day outside and, and life is better, or it's a rainy day and actually I'm feeling a bit depressed. That's a whole person. How do we help organisations and leaders connect with that person and allow conversations to exist in the organization that are human conversations. And I, I think organizations that are able to do that, and some do it quite naturally, but organizations and leaders that are able to do that have much more fulfilling, much more, if you like, therapeutic cultures than organizations who effectively pretend that things are rational and controllable. And this is where the, the, the curse of management theory, so since Taylor, a lot of management theory has driven the idea that people can be reduced to predictable uh, automatons of production. Right. So those who don't know Taylor. Uh, Taylor's original work, I mean, I, this is a long while ago, but he was looking at uh, was one of the early proponents of management theory, effectively through observation, identifying best ways of thinking. This is from about the 50s? Reputable practice. No, I think this was earlier than that, as far as I recall. Right, this right. Is, I, I'm, yep. um, I'm, I'm delving back into the 
darkness of my MBA here. But what you do see with a lot of management theory from those sort of early days is this idea that through observation, we can replicate practices that can then be in a sort of production line process way um, produced in different contexts. So leaders just learn all these techniques and they apply them serially or as, as, as required and, and hey presto, the whole thing works. In effect, it. yes. And, and I don't believe that. Um, I don't think it's very human. I think that people know when a leader is faking it. I think they know when a leader is lying. Um, I think they understand when an organisation is creating processes that are simply avoiding um, real issues. Right. And I think this is leading to an increasing amount of, of disengagement and alienation. So it's not just that you don't think these theories work. Are you also saying that they cause, have caused damage? Yes, I think so. I mean, there's a, there's a very good theory, um, psychodynamic theory, a, a woman called Isabel Menzies Life uh, produced an excellent paper um, where the concept of um, what we call social, uh, social defences was raised. So in essence, what Menzies Life noticed was in a, a health service, um, processes were introduced like, let's say, a drug prescription and a patient would receive a dose of painkiller at a particular time, whether they needed it or not. So if you needed your painkiller and it wasn't your time tough, you just had to live without it. Mm. If you didn't need your painkiller, you'd take it anyway. That process, she suggested, was in part constructed to help the nurses manage their own anxiety in terms of dealing with patients' pain, because it's not nice dealing with people who are suffering. She also felt that the hospital itself encouraged those processes so that they didn't have to deal with the pain the nurses felt right. in dealing with patients' pain. Right, so the right, whole thing right. was a defence against the fact that actually at the end of this corporate system, this health service system, was a group of people who were suffering um, and the system didn't want to confront that. Now, I look at a lot of organisations and their processes in exactly the same way. The best example of it is uh, performance management systems, which exist so that you never actually have to have a performance management discussion. Uh -huh. Because the purpose of the performance management discussion is this. You, Paul, can then say, oh, I'd love to rate you a number one, but HR won't let me because there's a false distribution curve and I'm not really allowed to do that. And so I'm going to put you here because HR's told me to. It's a fabulous way of stopping leaders or allowing leaders not to take responsibility for real performance conversations, mm. as opposed to a more human system, so as we might have with our families, where instead of saying to our children, you know, we're going to have a six monthly performance conversation where I'm going to tell you that your mother's not happy with you and you need to improve, you might actually on the minute, the day, um, the time something happens, say, let me just sit down and talk about that. I don't like the way you did that. Mm. Or, well done, that was brilliant. Mm. So moment by moment conversations. You don't need a process to do that. Right, right. But you must come across a lot of resistance from people who, you know, their whole career has been built around these things and they, they do them and they, they, think, they think, you know, maybe they think they're very good at them. And it's, it's the very core of what they do as a leader. It's in their toolkit. Of course. It, and it, it's an existential threat. Yeah. Um, and, and I fully understand that. And I think, you know, commercially for us, we have to make some decisions which say, well, actually, with this client or in this organisation, we won't be able to work with them because that's not a conversation that's, that's possible. Uh -huh. I think as well, though, even with organisations who you do work with and who are very keen to, to, to confront some of these challenges, this doesn't make it easy. Um, I mean, if we are 
effectively suggesting to an individual, whether it's as a leader or as an organisation, I know you've done this, and perhaps it's worked in the past, but this isn't really how it's working now. That's always going to cause conflict. Mm. I mean, that's, that's part of the work. Because what, in effect, you're doing is forcing people to come back to this idea of shadow, forcing people to face their own shadows. All right, right. Thing is, you see this when you go into organisations and they're struggling and you go in and you say, OK, we need to find what's, what lies beneath and then you find it. Does that mean that that's actually happening everywhere? Or is it that you just see the ones that are broken and there are others that are doing these things and it's all working great? I, I think it's happening everywhere. I mean, it, this doesn't mean that something's really bad or very path, you know, pathological. This doesn't mean that everybody's got a problem because I wouldn't want to reify that either. I mean, it's, 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 we're, not, we're not in the business of digging up the darkness and then everything will be fine. If we go back to the Jungian concept of shadow, to Jung's original concept, everybody has a shadow. And he said, the closer you move to the light, the blacker and denser your shadow falls behind. Give, give me an example then of, of the kind of things that you, you, you would see as being a shadow. Well, I mean, let's imagine a leader who is um, uh, very confident, very assertive. Right. The idea of shadow could be that um, being silent and being quiet in a meeting is a bad thing. It's a sign of weakness. I must never allow myself to do that. Okay. Um, of course, if we then flip that around a little bit within the shadow as Jung said you know there is a, there is gold in the shadow and the shadow is also the monster in the darkness so being silent yeah that's true sometimes you'll get you'll get ignored but at the same time silence allows you perspective it allows you opportunity to reflect now if you say to a leader who's built an entire career on speaking up actually sometimes you need to shut up a bit that can be very challenging yes uh, it's uncomfortable it's terrifying what happens if what happens if someone says something stupid and it goes off and, I, and I'm not in control anymore? What does that feel like? So those are difficult things to be able to confront, even at a personal level. And what we're not saying is you don't speak again. No. What we're saying is confront that as a balance and think about it. Re-engage with it in a different way. And I think the same is true for most organisations. You know, even very functional, very good organisations can learn, can move, can adapt. Mm. Because the world outside is moving and adapting. Mm. Mm. Um, and if you're not able to move with that, you're, you're going to be left behind at some point. The real crux is, can we have those conversations that are difficult, uncomfortable, that face the shadow? And how do we do that? Mm. Um, and that's a difficult habit to build. Mm. And that, for us... Is bread and butter. Yeah, and uh, just taking that a little bit further, uh, absolutely, you can see that someone f would feel threatened that you're 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 basically challenging their craft. If I can use that word as a leader, they, they've got all these things that they've done. But do you, you must also, I'm guessing, get in situations where it, it gets a bit deeper still than that psychologically, because yeah, you, you said someone would feel <coughs> feel threatened as a leader because you're you're challenging the techniques they apply, but you're also sort of dabbling with their own psychology a bit. Does that, do people sometimes struggle with, with that element? You're saying something about them as a person? I think we're always saying something about them as a person. I, I, I wouldn't differentiate actually between right. the way a leader shows up as a leader and the way they are as a person because the two psychologically are the same. I mean, if, mm. you, if you're wearing a, a persona, a mask, mm. it tells me something about you as a person, uh, either what you're trying to become or what you're trying to hide. And so I think it's impossible to avoid really working with people as people. If, you know, if the truism or we, we want to be human in our organisations, if that is true, if mm -hmm. it is a truism, then that entails us looking at the identity as human beings yeah. of the people in that organisation. And I think that is challenging. 
often not as challenging as we think it is, mm. sometimes more. But I also think it's the only possible way to help organisations become healthier, more human places. Mm. Give me one of your best examples then of where you've, you've done this and it's really, really turned things around. Um, we worked with an organisation some years ago and they wanted to do a large scale culture change. I remember the conversation because they, they sort of said, we want to do this. And we said, no, we, we don't. Well, we don't do that work. And they, we had a very... Because they wanted you to go down the conventional path? Um, well, they wanted us to do culture change. And at that point, we weren't doing that. But what we, where we came down to is we said, OK, why don't we get your senior team in a room and talk about why this business matters to you? That's it. Just talk about why you care. And we'll see what we've got in common. See how it goes. So they sat down and we talked about it. And there were some wonderful stories that came out about this business. And, you know, beyond all the rational blah that you get with any business, there were some really human examples of why people genuinely cared about the work this business did uh, for their community, for their people, for their own sort of sense of what good work was. We then said to them, OK, go and talk to your people. Ask them the same question. Ask them why this business matters to them. This is a big organisation. It's a big organisation. And uh, 150 managers had 23,000 conversations in eight weeks. 23,000 conversations. And those are documented ones. We had, in, you know, the actual mm. reports coming back mm. from it. Um, I remember one manager at the end of it, it was just a wonderful one. And he said, look, I don't, I don't care if we don't do anything with this. He said, it doesn't, you know, I've just had eight weeks of the most fantastic conversations with my people. Right. And we saw the same stories, you know, people coming back from the bottom of this business going, this is why I work for the business. And it's amazing. These were people who were apparently disengaged and they loved this business. We then said, OK, what you now need to do is go out and um, go out and ask them what they want to do about it and how they want to move things forward. Yeah. So they went back and they said, look, this is what we heard. So this is what our value set's going to be. And uh, we want to know how you're going to make this real. So in the next six months, they came back again. And we, we got some fantastic pieces of work from right, really small things. Like in this area, they discovered that um, there, was no, um, there were no women's changing rooms. There were these unisex changing rooms that were actually basically a, a shower that all the men used to use and the women used to have to wait for and therefore knock off work 30 minutes later than everyone else. Um, and the business had suddenly picked this up through conversation and thought, oh, we, we can't do this. So they'd actually start to invest in, in different different structures, which was really well received. We had a wonderful example of a woman who, who stood up in this uniform and that the, the, their employees wore and said, look, you know, this is, this is I want to model the uniform that combines uh, unisex with unattractive and ill-fitting. Um, it was a very funny presentation. Um, but she said, look, the, the point of this is that in the 10 years I've worked here, um, nobody's ever asked me what I want to wear. And one of the senior managers in the meeting, in this big sort of hall that we held it in, stood up and said, look, if I start a, a committee up tomorrow to relook at the uniform, do you want to be on it? And this mm. one was like, yeah. And mm. as a piece of leadership, this was absolutely fantastic. Mm. You know, he was doing mm. this in front of a, in a big meeting, in front of a lot of people. It was very spontaneous. It was very, very human. And it set a slightly different tone then for how the business moved forward. But what was really exciting about it was that the... Uh, Engagement survey that they used, uh, they showed a 3% uplift across the business, except for the areas where they'd had what they termed these big conversations. Mm -hmm. They showed a 16-point uplift over that period. Right, wow. And How often do you get a metric like that? Eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we, were, we just thought it was fabulous. But of course, on one level, there's nothing magical about this. If you ask somebody how they're feeling and then listen to what they say 
and then engage them in a conversation about what next, they will feel more motivated. Um, the research is, is absolutely consistent in this. If you ask somebody, you notice them, you witness them, you acknowledge their pain, the challenges that face them, and you work with them, they will consider you to be more charismatic than anyone else. But it has to be real though, isn't it? I mean, it's not a case of, of okay, well, we'll just develop a, a, a number of, of tools that we'll send out and, and, and get people to fill out apps or go on courses or whatever. They have to actually really believe that they, they have been listened to, that their voice is heard, that they are getting increasing agency. I know you've, you've talked about that as well in the past. Well, it's, but it's not easy. I mean, if you are a senior manager and you, you have been... Um, brought up if you like in business to believe that you must have all the answers and not to have all the answers is is essentially a, a failing on your part then to be able to walk into a room and have someone say ask you a question or give you some feedback that you don't have an answer to that's pretty threatening and i think it requires development work being done at an individual and organizational level that really builds what we might think of as ego strength with those individuals, with those senior managers, the point at which they can actually go, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure, but let me find out. Yeah, well, funnily enough, I was talking to, to Joanne Rencher, who uh, people have been listening to the season will have, have heard in a previous episode, and she's an HR executive mm. uh, and, uh, and now consultant. And she was saying a very similar thing. And, and the word she used, which she said was really important, was humility. Yeah, I think it's great. And humility and humanity in, in some ways are you know, very different routes, obviously, but very similar ideas for me, which is you're just like everyone else. And once you sort of accept that, once you accept that everybody is on this kind of journey, everybody's scared, um, and your role as a leader is not to be not scared. That would be interesting. Your role is actually to be able to be a step ahead, to have a plan for how you might want to deal with it. And there's a huge difference, I think, between a leader saying, uh, I can't talk about that right now. Let me come back to you. And in effect saying to people, I'm really scared and you should be, by the way, because we're not having a conversation about that, um, which sets off all sorts of, uh, of problems. And a leader saying, yeah, it's a good question. That worries me as well. But I think we've got a plan. This is what it could be. I'm working on this, this and this at the moment and we'll brief you as soon as possible. The latter for me, people will take as, yeah, that's pretty real. And, and, and it feels like somebody's got control. So if I just fall behind this guy, he'll probably be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The former is, I don't trust you. What do you do about people, though, who are in leadership positions who actually just can't do conversation? I mean, I'm thinking of one or two individuals, one particular very senior person because of, of, of uh, his complete antipathy to want to have those conversations. He just wanted to tell people to do stuff and yeah. then... Do you ever come across that kind of situation? Well, well you do. And I, I think off the top of my head, I mean, my immediate response would be, well, they shouldn't be in leadership positions. But I don't, I don't actually agree with that. Mm. I think that what is interesting for people is that sense of human connection can come even though you're clumsy. I remember a, a guy I worked with years ago who was a diabolical line manager, actually, really, really quite bad, sort of quite rude and, and very difficult and to the point of being a bit of a bully sometimes. Um, and I remember we spent a lot of time working with him on one of the programs and he was quite a nice guy, but just, just no ability to sort of 
be empathic or um, manage his, uh, his, his emotional state. Mm. Um, and I remember going back to his team about a year later and I said, you know, how's, how's, he, how's he doing? And they said, oh, he's still terrible, but, but he's really trying. <laughs> and, and actually that made the difference mm. because people saw the kind of human in him. They saw he was trying to make an effort and they worked with him mm -hmm. as a human being, mm -hmm. as opposed to this is a guy who doesn't care and doesn't care that he doesn't care. And I think there's a huge difference on those two things. I'm imagining, though, that if you if you do go in and you're doing this kind of stuff, you're not you're not an overnight cure, are you? Oh God, no. I mean, it's always fun on culture change, actually. You know, because people often in the business will say, "Yeah, we we need this, we need this done and dusted." You got you got two years, and you think you must be joking. Um, you cannot change the culture of a business in in well anything less than five probably less oh, and than we're talking about large businesses yeah. or any size business I, I would say almost any size business actually. really you know it requires habit it requires practice i mean it, you know as opposed to a small, sort of small mom and pop shop but if we say we're running a, a business um which may be a listed business it takes time because you're rebuilding fundamental habits in the organization you're working with un, unspoken assumptions you're dealing with uh, fantasies, dreams, emotions, complexes, all of which are driving how that business operates. Right. Um, and all of which require a degree of long-term work. So two years to you is, is nowhere near long enough. I mean, not for much, no. Right. So how long does it take to deliver meaningful right. change? I mean, it depends on the scope. I mean, you can work with an individual and you can have Damascene moments and maybe you can pull something off in six months to a year, but that's rare can work with a large organization and still not even be close to achieving change in in five to ten years and you know and what is change anyway because I, I think for me a lot of the change that I would like to work with is, is what I would describe as emergent um, in the sense that we don't really know what the business needs to be um, we have an idea about the factors that are driving it at the moment we think we know where the market's going we sort of understand what's going on mm. but the world keeps changing so how do we encourage businesses to move purposively, directionally, to begin a journey? So in many ways, when you're working with psychodynamic theory in organisations, you're not achieving an end game, a goal that can be measured. You're helping people walk a path more effectively. You're helping people understand the journey they're on, um, which I think is a slightly different mindset. Can you give us an example then of where you've, you've ended up in that sort of long-term journey with a, with a group, an organisation? What typically happens with the work that we do is that people will think that the problem is ABC. So they'll decide, okay, the real issue here is um, we've got a problem with our performance management system. Once you start getting into it, what you'll notice actually is the problem lies instead with um, the way you might think about reward or the fact that the business isn't clear about what its primary task is, mm. for example. So, you know, with an organisation I worked in recently, a very dysfunctional team, um, the real fundamental issue was the parent company were using this team as a way of um, testing uh, its uh, risk parameters um, and expecting another business unit to manage the actual risk management framework. Um, but no one was talking about this. So of course what's happening with this team is a degree of confusion. We're being asked by these guys to do this and these guys to do that and none of it actually makes any sense. So the real thing was to come in and help fix the team because the team is a problem and as we looked at it the team wasn't really a problem at all. And in fact our perspective was if they weren't feeling this, I'd be really surprised mm, mm. Um, because they're effectively being pulled in two different directions by forces who won't explain themselves. Mm. So the real issue here in the organization is 
you know, what is the organization doing in this particular uh, business unit? What are they, what is that business unit set up to achieve? And do the different parts of the business that are driving them, have they had a conversation? Because if they haven't, we're gonna continue having this problem. It might not be there, it might be another part, but it'll continue to be there. So what then emerges from that conversation is a different problem, if you like, um, which is that a couple of senior managers in other parts of the world, in other business units, aren't having conversations. And that becomes our solution. So can you, can you in terms of, of, of you know, prolonging the journey, can you actually then train an organisation to do more of this itself and, and to promulgate you, the, the approach you're taking? Well, yeah, because noticing in conversation, they're just habits. I mean, you know, we right. can, you can walk into a, into a prep tomorrow um, and notice the person who serves you coffee yeah. and have a conversation with them. Or you can treat them like a vending machine and, and not have a conversation with them. Yeah. And some people just do that, though, and others don't. But this is what I mean by the habit. Right. Because for some people, this comes reasonably naturally because it's how they, they've been brought up. And, but other people can train themselves to do this. We can spend time noticing. Do you actually specifically train in that then? Yeah, we can do. We have done that. Yeah. How do you do that? Give me, give me um, some, all sorts of ways. I was at one of my favorite events recently was we, we did a whole, uh, a whole day training principally coaches and HR people on, um, on how to notice what lies beneath the, beneath the surface. And one of the things we use for that is a two and a half minute video of a baby playing with a tin can. Um, and people watch this and they go, yeah, it's a baby playing with a tin can. And the conversation's very weak. And, and we'll say, okay, let's, let's just hold that for a second. Let's look at the idea of symbol and what role it plays in expressing the unconscious and how we might start to think about using that to build hypotheses about what may actually be happening. So we then say, okay, how old's the baby? The baby's 11 months. Okay, so what's happening at 11 months? Well, it's starting to separate from its mother, weaning process. Other mothers in the room, yes, they usually know. Great, let's talk about that. So what might be going on? If that was symbolic, well, perhaps the baby's thinking about this. And perhaps this, you know, she's playing with this idea about what is seen and what is unseen. And the tin can is, oh, and then they did this. And then you, we, the last one we ran, you know, we had this, this two and a half video that, led to a 10 minute fairly bland discussion. We then had a conversation about symbol and the theory of that, and then led to a hour and a half long discussion about what might be going on in this baby's mind. Now, of course, we don't know, but what we are seeing in that is people are suddenly noticing things they hadn't noticed before. So at least they're, in, they're being curious. They're starting, and, and, but, but crucially, they're actually seeing things that they mm -hmm. completely ignore. Right, right, right. right. Um, so someone will say, it's just a baby playing with a tin can. And then someone will say, but isn't it interesting that when she leans behind, she makes that noise and she only makes two of the noises and, and they're both at points where she's reaching mm. for something. So perhaps it's a, mm. and you then start to get this, this very rich discussion about what might actually be going on. That's a, a good way of training, it's to do with babies. But you can take that up and start to look at it in organizational life as you, as you were as a leader. When you walk across the floor, do you notice what people say? Mm. Do you talk to them? Do you notice how they talk to you? What is somebody wearing? What is the temperature of the room? What is the environment of the room? Have you thought about these things? We did a great one actually for another client when um, similar exercise, we got them to observe one of their working environments. And um, they came back with this, this observation that there was a very big clock in the entrance. And it led to a really interesting debate about was the clock uh, a motivational tool or was it an instrument of oppression? 
um, and what sort of culture did they have and how was the clock used? It was a very, very interesting right, discussion right, because right, right, it right, right. opened up thoughts to them about how tiny little nuances of how they work as leaders might be interpreted given the, the other aspects of the environment. So strength in that kind of, let's call it nobility, would you say that was an indicator of someone who had you know, strong leadership potential? What one indicator? I think someone who's got strong human potential. I don't know about leadership. I mean, I, I'm never really sure what is even meant by that anyway. But I think as a foundation for leadership, the ability to notice what is going on around you is right. an absolute essential. So it might even be a good um, way of assessing individuals as, you know, assessing their potential to be a leader. And are they able to do that kind of thing? I think it could be a very useful way of doing that, yeah. Right. Which makes me, you know, we came back to this point about some people are naturally good at it and other people can be trained. Um, and it's a bit of a, of, a, of a trite question, but I'll ask you anyway. Are leaders born or made? Uh, yeah, I think... Personally, I, I think they're mostly made, but that making is a lifetime. I mean, we talk about noticing... Many people who are very good at noticing might be what we term hypervigilant. What causes that? Uh, all sorts of problems around inadequate parenting, uh, difficult early schooling, uh, degree of uncertainty in, in, in early life. So the strength emerges, if you like, from difficulties. So is it possible to train anyone else to do that? Of course it is. It's absolutely possible. Mm. But some people it will take a long while and some people it will be a very natural experience. Mm. Um, I think the challenge is, I mean, on noticing that we don't really teach or train leaders at any level to notice pretty much anything, actually. I mean, the whole kind of pitch, if you like, for leadership development is have a brilliant idea, Paul, and then pitch it to people and polish it so you become better at pitching it. Now, the trouble is with that is that people don't want to be pitched at. They mm. want to be understood. Um, the leaders who are good at pitching are good at pitching, not because they have some magical capacity to pitch, but because they're pitching something people want and they know they need it. And there's a connection formed around that. And I think if we spent less time focusing on some of these kind of internal behavioral traits that leaders have and a little bit more time thinking about the relational aspects of leadership, I think leaders would be much better positioned. Mm, mm. Well, the follow on from my question is, you know, the there could well be people listening to this who are really uh, enthused by the idea, but they're not in a, in a position to call you in, but they themselves are interested in developing their own leadership. Mm. So what would you say to them? I would say spend time. Um, there's a great concept called mentalization, which is where you are doing two things. One is you're noticing what you see uh, in others, and then you're consciously creating mental models of what might be happening in their world. So how I would tr get people to train this, how I think that's a good starting point if you're on your own, is build some time where you think about what is happening in the relations that mm -hmm. you have. Mm -hmm. So notice what you see, tiny ways, tiny symbols, notice as much as you can. And you're not just talking about work here, you're just oh, talking no, about no, no. life in a whole. Best place to try this is a coffee shop. Go and buy a coffee and notice what is the what you know? What is the person called? What do they look like? What accent do they have? Where might they be from? Um, start to build up a little bit of a model about what sort of day they're having, mm. how they're relating to you as a mm. customer, and then move to a third level and start to use that then to have a conversation. Maybe mm. ask them how they're feeling, mm. and and just make if you like some some guesses as to what might really be going on, and see how that conversation flows. It's a great way to test it, um, and the more you do it, 
the better you get. Mm-hmm. And then you can start doing it in work. You can start doing it with family and friends. Um, and see what changes in the quality and tone of your relationships, whether it's a transactional coffee or it's a, you know, a, a sort of relationship with a partner, simply by noticing somebody and responding to what you notice. You do that routinely yourself? I do that routinely myself, yeah. I mean, one of the things you can do very practically as an immediate sort of thing is simply um, notice your own emotions and name them. How am I feeling right now? And what might that mean? Where's that from? Thank you. That's it. Because we go through the day often sort of saying, I'm feeling angry. But what does that anger mean? How angry is angry? Is yeah. it angry? Is it irritated? Yeah. It's a little bit more yeah. well, how, does that, how does that work? Well, I mean, why, why, is that, why is that useful? I mean, because if you can notice it in yourself, you can start to notice it in others. Right. So you talk about empathy, are you? Um, I think empathy is one of the uh, foundations of mentalization because empathy allows you to feel an emotion, to, to name it, to identify it. Mm-hmm. Mentalization is when you take it on a little bit further and you allow yourself to actually go, well, where's that from? And what does that mean to me? Is it wholly mine? Is it wholly yours? Is it a, a mix of the two of us? Right. I mean, some of this stuff is is very much part of, of the whole idea of emotional intelligence. Yes. Do you buy into the concept of emotional intelligence? Well, at a high level, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there are things... I think emotional intelligence as a concept has been slightly hijacked and turned into, a, again, a, a sort of painting-by-numbers... That's, that's well, there are, yeah, exactly. There are whole frameworks you can follow to, to measure your emotional intelligence and, yeah. and work on I'm, on I'm not sure I really buy any of that. Um, I think I would tend to say, you know, instead of worrying about emotional intelligence, go back and just have a relationship. Um, just go back and talk to someone. Try mm. and understand them and see what that feels like. And use that to build conversations, see, see where it takes you. We had a conversation recently on LinkedIn um, with someone about um, vulnerability and this idea that, you know, leaders should be vulnerable. And I look at it and I think, well, why? You know, what, do you want me to really be vulnerable? Or do you want me to fake vulnerability? Because um, faking vulnerability, that's going to be, that's not going to work out well. Being really vulnerable, I mean, you know, anyone who says that probably has never worked in business. The interesting question, I think, instead is, have a human relationship. And within that human relationship, there will be moments where it will feel okay to be vulnerable. And vulnerability will be the right thing to do. The humanity is much more important than the, the Indeed. tricks Indeed. There will be some people, though, who will just be really, really uncomfortable with all of that. I mean, and I can think of leaders that I've not known, you know, not necessarily senior leaders, but people who were in leadership positions and they got to be in those leadership positions because they were technically excellent. Yes. So they were the top performer. So they were made the boss of the lab, for example. And the examples I'm thinking of were all lab based. And, uh, you know, they could they could relate to a test tube but they couldn't relate to a person. And I think they knew that. So they probably shouldn't be the leader then, or should they? I I think everyone can relate. Well, that's not true. I think most people can relate to people. I think the difficulty is, is if you take someone where that's not their natural forte and you make them a leader, it becomes terrifying experience. Yeah. And the more afraid you are, the more you're going to revert to what you know. Uh Um, So I've worked with a number of people who are real specialists. Yeah, yeah. Hardcore. Um, and of course, part of the, the terror that they didn't didn't admit to anyone other than a coach is, um, I'm not sure people like me. I'm not sure I know how to understand them. I'm not sure how to have a conversation. Maybe I can't. Mm. And then when you break it down, you think, yeah, it's funny. You have conversations with your kids. You have a conversation with your dog. Why can't you with your work? Well, there's all these expectations and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I think if we if we stop seeing leadership as this sort of, 
mask of excellence, of perfection. And we start seeing it more as it's just a, it's just a way of having a human conversation. You know, what's the difference between a leader and a non-leader at a human level is the leader's probably a little bit further along and the non-leader just wants them to, to guide them through a bit of the path. Yeah. Do you, do you when, you, when you're, you're talking with people and you're working with clients, explore why people want to be leaders? Yeah, that's an interesting one, actually. Um, and I think you open up a lot of cans of worms there. I mean, with you know, apart from the various sort of psychopathologies, narcissism and so on, I think some people want to be leaders because that's what's expected of them. Um, I remember a great conversation a few years ago. It was quite, it, I laugh about it now. It wasn't funny at the time. And um, we were doing an assessment and uh, speaking to a country manager who wanted to become a cluster head for a large business that I was involved with. And um, I remember saying to him, so, you know, why do you want this, this bigger job? And he looked at me and he said, because um, it's one bigger than the one I'm doing now. And I said, yeah, I get, I, I get that, obviously. But, you know, a country head, you have to motivate these people in the country and manage the sales force. And a cluster, it's a slightly different, slightly more complicated role. It's less hands-on. So, so why this job and why not the country job? And he looked at me as if I was the idiot and said, because it's one bigger than the one I'm in now. And I remember thinking at the time, oh my God, this is not going to end well. Because he hadn't given any thought at all to the relationships, the challenges, the complexity, its impact on him, his own motivation. Does anyone ever do that? Um, I think some people don't. I think some people, the, the, the climbing of the tree is the thing. And again, I think it's very important, particularly around midlife, which is, is what we're really talking about here, where leaders start to make some of those big transitions between being the functional lead where frankly you know there is a real or imaginary father figure patting you on the head every time you do a good job or 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 directing you if you're not doing a good job to that sudden realization where i'm in charge here yeah um which requires something of me um and i think organizations give very little support to leaders making those transitions to help them figure out why do i really want that job well, do you do anything like that, though? Do you talk to people about, about you know, what are their expectations and what their expectations should be about becoming a leader? I mean, it's central to my work. I don't, I would never think about what expectations should be because I had Okay, no, no I, made the, I made the RD um, Lang error there. I will, I will, I will, I will yeah. redact should, <laughs> I know, redact bad word, bad word. Um, but what it could be, yes, I, I think so, because people, people, if we're moving particularly through the midlife period, I mean, we're, we're dealing not just with leadership here, but with the midlife expectations. I mean, if we look at the human journey, we spend the first half of our life effectively fitting in. Uh, and that's, that's good. You know, we have to learn craft. We have to make money. We have to be seen as a serious, proper person in our organizations. You know, we have to, we have to do stuff. We have to adult. Once we come to, to midlife, the question is, well, how good is good enough? Do I keep repeating? Is this it? Is this enough? If we have a, a fantasy of what leadership is based on uh, the ideals of patriarchal figures, and they usually are patriarchal figures, and maybe some matriarchal, but they're usually patriarchal, um, or the crystallization, if you like, of those forms in business schools, which tell us what leadership is, and mm -hmm. then we're in essence chasing a ghost. We're armed with things that are not ours, and we are pretending to be something. 
The reality of leadership is you don't know, actually. You don't know what you'll be. You don't know what the answers are, and particularly in our times. I mean, if you know, to be absolutely honest, if we're in a complete stable state, why do I need a leader anyway? I know my job. Leaders take us through change. And the, the reality of these times are that we don't know what the answer is going to be. We don't know what the monster in the darkness is going to look like. And so what a leader has to be able to do at every aspect of their capability has to be built around is negative capability. I need to be able to work with ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, and how do I ground myself through that? Well, I talk to people. I connect with people of all different sorts and I help them make meaning and in doing so make meaning myself and in making meaning I understand what role I can play what difference I can make I build my own agency and in building my own agency I'm better able to release agency to others so what I think good leadership is about is about being confident or being create or having the spaces created where you can build the confidence to listen to the world make sense of it and make your own decisions as opposed to not listen to the world, fake and polish a message that nobody really believes, that by the way didn't come from you anyway, that came from a book or a person above you or a shareholder or a blah, 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 blah. Because that is very obvious. People know when people are faking it. And they also know when someone is paying attention to them, listening, working something through, and when they have the courage to do that. Because there's something incredibly attractive, if you like, about an individual who can stand calmly in the middle of a storm and go, hmm, okay, let's work with this. Where are we? What do we do? Do this or do that? As opposed to someone who's frozen or running around panicking. You know, we, we are drawn towards people who seem to be able to help us make meaning. And I think that's what leadership is really about. I think we can train leaders to do that. And I think until we train leaders to do that, we will continue to get what we've got which, let's face it, isn't great. I'd like to say a big thank you to Lawrence for both his hospitality and a thoroughly absorbing conversation. Did you find anything that Lawrence had to say heretical? Or did it ring true with your own experience? I'd love to know. The Talking Leaders podcast is a Talking Leaders production. We work with leaders who want to be heard, to be understood, and to build trust.